You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Woolly mammoth, upland moa, Chinese river dolphin, great auk. It's a disappearing act, and it's heartbreaking. Thousands of species that once sauntered, swam, and soared across the planet are gone. Ivory-billed woodpecker, saber-toothed cat, the quagga. Creatures that were majestic, beautiful, ordinary, quirky. There's the shy, nearly blind Chinese river dolphin that plied the Yangtze River until, well, about a decade ago. The flightless, white-stomached great auk, kind of large penguin that lived along the shores of the North Atlantic driven to extinction just before the American Civil War. Nendo tube-nosed fruit bat, lesser mascarine flying fox, Balearic Islands cave goat. Species vanish for a variety of reasons, some due to natural forces, ice ages, meteor impacts, an uptick in predation, and some as a direct result of the overzealous hunting habits and environmental influences of Homo sapiens. For whatever reasons, the curtain has come down on these creatures We know them now only through photos, drawings, or their bones stacked up in our museums. Extinction, as we know, is forever. Or so we thought. You can take cells from a woolly mammoth, they're dead cells, but there's DNA in them. And you can, and people have, sequenced that DNA. That's when it gets exciting. Could the tools of science reverse time's arrow? Could we once again mingle with mastodons and dance with dodos? Could it be, as William Faulkner wrote, that the past isn't dead? It isn't even past. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's the ultimate round-trip ticket, de-extinction, on Big Picture Science. Okay, we don't know what a woolly mammoth sounds like. We don't have a woolly mammoth. But we do have its understudy, because... The hirsute behemoths with the curly tusks are closely related to elephants. It's been 10,000 years since woolly mammoths freely roamed the Arctic tundra, but they've left bones, tusks, hair, and the attendant DNA behind, preserved in the icy permafrost. We'll hear about the scientific effort of de-extinction for bringing species back and also the arguments for and against it. But first, a primer on how it might be done. Now, for this, we need to go to the worlds of genetics, genomics, and biotech engineering. Now, we don't have those tools here on hand, but we do have these, Seth. Oh, Legos. Okay, so the idea here is to demonstrate how one would bring back an extinct species. You and I are going to sequence the genome of two different animals. Really? Yeah. Is that going to take a while? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to do it with Legos. You're going to do the woolly mammoth. So you want to snap... Uh, some of these bricks into place. Okay. 
So each one of these colored bricks represents a nucleotide. So what do we have? Uh, red is... Oh, red could be adenine. Okay, blue here will be guanine. Yeah, yellow. Okay. Yellow Yellow could be thymine. All right, so white is cytosine. So mm-hmm. we snap them together on the boards here, you know, as you snap Legos together end to end. Yeah. You snapping? <laughs> like a turtle. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. Okay, so we have a string of nucleotides here. Yeah, so I can kind of read that off to you. All in a line here, I start with blue, then red, then red, then yellow, then white, then red, then blue. So, you know, I mean, what that is is guanine and then adenine and adenine and then thymine and then cytosine and so forth. So that's really the instruction set here for a woolly mammoth. Okay, so you have it for the woolly mammoth and I have it for the Asian elephant, which is related to the woolly mammoth. So these are going to be genomes that are similar but not identical. Now, let's find out in what ways... They're not identical. Why don't you read off um, your first row of Legos there, what what colors you have. Okay, here it is. Here's the sequence. It's blue, red, red, yellow, white, red, blue. Okay, mine's different. Mine is blue, red, red, blue, white, red, yellow. Ooh, that's the difference between the two species. Right. Those little differences. Yeah, and you would have to compare the whole genome to find out what they were. Okay, so in order to... uh, bring back an extinct species, in this case it would be the woolly mammoth, what you would do next? Now, we can't grow woolly mammoths. We don't have any woolly mammoth mothers around to to produce young woolly mammoths, but we do have Asian elephants. So what we can do is go get one of these germ cells out of an Asian elephant. That's, That's the kind of cell that would reproduce and normally produce an Asian elephant. Right. So you look at the Asian elephant genome that you have in front of you, and you look where it differs from the woolly mammoth, and you make changes to the Asian elephant genome so it matches that of the woolly mammoth. Then you take that whole genome, and you put it in the germ cell, as you said, and then you bring that baby to term. I mean, it gets complicated after that, but that's that's the basic... The that's basic, the idea. Yeah, that's, that's the, the basic idea. idea. Yeah. And if you have a Lego set at home, you can create your own genome of any species you want. If you've got enough Legos. But let's say you get some mammoth DNA and you put together a genome. How soon before we're snapping photos of these hairy beasts as they stroll through Pleistocene Park? Well, even those who wield the know-how warn that our imaginations are still ahead of the science. My name is Beth Shapiro. My title is Associate Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. I tend to make up what people call me. I think molecular paleontologist was my latest thing. And it's a good one. Beth Shapiro researches the DNA of prehistoric animals. And there's a lot you can learn from the ancient DNA of a woolly mammoth, say. For example, its evolutionary history. And she says that using that DNA to bring the animal back is beyond our capabilities for now. Beth, let's start with the woolly mammoth, for example. It went extinct. Do we know what the human role was in its disappearance? I'd say that we're still trying to figure that out. What it looks like when we look now at several different species, some that went extinct and some that didn't go extinct during the end of the Pleistocene, the early Holocene. That's somewhere between maybe 15 and 5,000 years ago. 
what was happening with these guys, with these different populations throughout the Pleistocene interval. And for this, you have to keep in mind that the last two million years or so were dramatic oscillations between ice ages, cold ice ages, and warmer interglacial periods, like the period we're in today. And during these oscillations, you had different communities of animals that were adapted either to the ice ages or to the interglacial periods, and mammoth and horses and bison. These things used to be tremendously abundant in Alaska and Siberia during the last ice age, and it was only during the interval where it started to warm up that they started to do more poorly, and we see that their populations were decreasing in size. So if you can think back further than this most recent oscillation between an ice age and an interglacial period, what we have is the same thing happening. And if we could get DNA from these earlier periods, and we can't yet, but we're trying, we're getting better at this, what we'd probably see are when it's cold, their populations are big, and when it's warm, their populations are small. And then it gets cold again and their populations recover and it gets warm again and they start doing badly again. And then it gets cold again and they recover and it gets warm again, they start doing more badly and then we turn up and then they go extinct. So it's hard for me really to disentangle that yes, certainly these, these major patterns that we're seeing are being driven by climate, but there's only one of these oscillations that they didn't make it through. And that's the most recent one. And the difference between the most recent oscillation and the previous ones is that humans were around. When we talk about the condition of um, DNA, do you have good DNA from mammoths? I mean, it's cold, and I would assume that the DNA has been preserved, but we just how well preserved? Great DNA from mammoths. <laughs> Wonderful DNA from mammoths. It's uh, so much better than any DNA that we can get from things that are preserved in temperate environments or cave sites. It's, it's great. Have you collected it yourself, personally? Mm, we've collected, yes. I've collected lots of DNA from lots of different things, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's not an ordinary thing to do to collect mammoth DNA. How do you, how do, you do it? Where do you go, and then how do you actually get the DNA? Well, there's a lot of bones that are held in museum collections um, that people have collected over the last century or so. Um, we also go out into the Arctic, and we will either walk along riverbanks, and every year during the spring thaw, the rivers up in the Arctic get very high and very powerful. And what they'll do is they'll tear through the permafrost as they're coming around one quarter and deposit all the stuff that was in that frozen dirt on the next riverbank. And so after the spring flush, we'll walk through with our canoes and boats and just pick up the pieces of bones that we find on the riverbanks. Could we bring back an animal such as the woolly mammoth? I mean, this, this idea of bringing back extinct species, could it really happen? Could it or should it? Uh, the answer to could it is uh, no, not today. We can't do that today. Tomorrow? Um, tomorrow, probably not still. Um, within the next couple of decades, maybe, there are some huge technical challenges that we'll need to overcome in one way or another before we can actually do that. The only way that we know how to clone things, for example, is if we have an intact nucleus and we're never ever going to find an intact nucleus of something that's extinct. As soon as an animal dies, its DNA begins to get broken down. It's broken down by enzymes within the cell, by the decay process, by ultraviolet radiation, by water and oxygen. All these things will gradually chop up those long fragments of DNA that make up our genome into smaller and smaller pieces until eventually, and in the permafrost, this also eventuality is, is only a couple hundred thousand years probably, um, until eventually it's all, it's all gone. 
Would you say that there's a movement, or how would you characterize the movement that's been called de-extinction? Some people believe that this will happen. We can bring back some of these animals, and some say that we can't, and this is getting away from the question of whether or not we should. How would you just describe this field now? I'm not sure that I would even call it a field yet. I think it's uh, it's people who are interested in the technology and the ideas who want to come together and have an informed discussion about something that probably will happen eventually in the future and really let everyone get their ideas and fears and worries out in the open while before it happens you know and i i appreciate that about it. Uh, I've been kind of drawn into it because I work on ancient DNA, I work on some of these things, but my end goal is not personally to bring an extinct species back to life, and that can bring us back to should we rather than could we. But I think that as we discuss it, we're going to learn a lot more, not only about the technology that we need to do this, but also about the, the ethics associated with such a question. And it really brings people together from all sorts of disparate disciplines. Well, you were talking about the fragility of DNA, of ancient DNA, so I would assume that the animals that people are considering for return would be animals that have disappeared recently. The further back you go, the harder it is, I would guess, to extract that DNA and do anything useful with it. Well, there are a lot of different criteria that people have suggested should go into choosing species that should be considered for de-extinction. And one of them, obviously, is the ease with which we can collect genomic data. There is a place in San Diego called the Frozen Zoo that Ollie Ryder has been running, and they are collecting and freezing good quality, intact cells from things that are on the verge of extinction. And given the technology that we have now, that is the most promising method for bringing something back. But of course, you have to get these cells before it's actually extinct. Um, Once something is extinct, you're in a world of hurt, really. Um, If it is a mammoth, then that's good because it's cold and the DNA is going to be in good condition. If it's something that went extinct last week and it's a warm place, it could mean that your DNA is already in worse condition than our best preserved mammoth. So it's hard. But there are other problems with a mammoth. They're, mammoth are big, and you need to come up with a place to put a developing baby mammoth once you've magically been able to piece together a genome and magically been able to get that into a nucleus and magically gotten that to start replicating and doing its thing. You'd have to put that developing thing inside some maternal host. And in this case, it would probably be an elephant. But Elephants are much smaller than mammoths, and so the process of development of a mammoth inside an elephant could actually be devastating to the mother elephant. And you choose them because they're related. Because they're related, Mm -hmm. because their genomes are going to be very similar. Mm -hmm. But that also brings up another potential problem, and that's that... um, Many of the differences between a mammoth and an elephant are likely to be in the timing and amount of expression of different genes, where the DNA sequence themselves might be identical, but the difference really could be due to how much of that gene is expressed as protein and when during the developmental stage. And much of that could actually be signaled and determined by the mother rather than the embryo itself. And so that, again, is a problem that we'll have to think about and learn more about developmental biology in order to be able to understand and fix as we go through this process. Speaking of DNA damage, or what, what condition is mammoth DNA in? I mean, you don't have the whole genome. You have part of a genome, and there are a lot of holes in it. And is it contaminated in any way? 
We probably do have whole genomes, but in tiny fragments that we would somehow need to be able to piece together. So the DNA, once the animal dies, just starts to degrade and starts to break down into smaller and smaller fragments. And the samples do get contaminated. It's kind of a contamination. So the bone is sitting in the dirt, and the bone is going to be colonized by bacteria that live in the dirt. And so when we extract DNA from a piece of bone that we've chopped up, take a little bit of a fragment out of, um, we'll extract DNA, and we'll see that maybe in a well-preserved specimen, about 60% of what we get back, that's, this is a great preserved specimen, is actually mammoth DNA or maps to mammoth or the elephant genome, whereas the rest of it is just going to be stuff we're not interested in. It'll be environmental bacteria, um, maybe our DNA from touching the bone while we were doing the DNA extraction. We can pull that apart and figure out which bits are mammoth and which bits aren't. And so that's what we've got left. Well, can you figure out which bits make a mammoth a mammoth? I mean, if a mammoth is related to an elephant, um, they're going to have some common genes, and then there will be some that are uniquely mammoth. And what are they, and how do you know what makes a woolly mammoth a woolly mammoth? That's a great question, and is one of the things that we're going to learn as we try to do this. One of the problems there is exactly that. So when we get these little fragments of DNA, the only way that we know that it's a mammoth compared to a human or a piece of microbe is that we have to, to compare it to all the DNA sequences that have ever been published from stuff. And we say, so what is this the closest match to? And if it comes up that the closest match is an elephant, then we know it's probably a mammoth. So really what we're identifying are all the bits that are most like an elephant. And what we're interested in are those bits that are distinguishing it from an elephant. So therein you have yet another problem in this whole process. Beth Shapiro, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Beth Shapiro is an ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She also answers to molecular paleontologist. And while she says we should be cautious in our claims to recover vanished species... Uh, my name is Ben Novak, and I have the amazing privilege to make a career out of bringing back an extinct animal, and that would be the passenger pigeon. Meet the man who is determined to blanket the skies with billions of birds not seen for two generations. That's next. And, like everything else, we'll be right back. It's de-extinction on Big Picture Science. <laughs> While traveling along the Ohio River, James Audubon witnessed a flock of passenger pigeons, and he wrote, The light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. Billions of these birds once darkened the skies of North America. In the 19th century, they were the most abundant avian species in the world. By the early 20th, they were gone. Considered a tasty and a cheap source of food, the passenger pigeon was hunted out of existence. The last pigeon, Martha, died in a zoo in 1914. Today, 1,500 of the birds are found in museum collections, stuffed and mounted. Now, as we've learned, the first step in bringing an extinct species back to life is to get hold of its DNA, or at least as much of it as you can. We have about 70 passenger pigeons in our collection. We're extracting DNA from each of those, and we're going to try to identify the best preserved from among those, and then use that one or those few as targets to try to begin to assemble a passenger pigeon genome. And bringing a vanished species back aside, there's a lot to be learned from an extinct species from that DNA, such as the effect of environmental changes on diversity, which is Beth Shapiro's interest. However, one scientist has another plan for a completed passenger pigeon genome. All right, my name is Ben Novak. Ben is a visiting biologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he works for the Revive and Restore Project at the Long Now Foundation. 
I've been hired to bring the passenger pigeon back to life. Ben has started working in the lab, and his interest is to bring the passenger pigeon back to life. And while I admire his drive and enthusiasm, I'm not sure that the passenger pigeon is really the right specimen to be bringing back to life right now. And I wonder what we're bringing this bird back to, and whether it can actually ever survive as a passenger pigeon would have survived in past. Of course, I'll leave all of that to Ben to argue, because he argues a lot for in favor of bringing the passenger pigeon back to life. Indeed, Ben is passionate about this subject. My history with passenger pigeons goes goes way back. Um, I was in junior high when I discovered the story of the passenger pigeon, and it, uh, you know, from from then on all the way into my university years, there was there was a, a high affinity to like just the, the grandeur of the story, uh, these billions to none so quickly. And, and really the birds just, when I see them uh, in collections, which is one of the privileges of my work, uh, I just, that's, that's what I love. I love going and actually seeing the birds. Um, they're just beautiful. Describe it. Can you describe it? We do not have one in front of us right here, but I bet it's etched in your memory. Oh, they're severely etched. Uh, uh, multiple specimens are, are etched in my memory. The, the passenger pigeon is is very different from your street pigeon that you see. Uh, and and that's the first uh, cultural inhibition I encounter when I tell people I'm going to bring back the passenger pigeon is they immediately think of rock pigeons filling your streets and pooping on your cars. Very different bird. A passenger pigeon is, it's about the same size as a street pigeon, but you want to picture its body shape more like a mourning dove. So it's this very long, slender, elegant dove-shaped tail, very swift wings, a more regal neck, and just a swifter body. It has a larger breast in proportion to the body because it's a far superior speed flyer than the rock pigeon. And as far as color goes, the combination of colors, this striking blue-gray zone and this red zone, and where they tend to blend with the other colors, it's just, it's a, it's, just incredible to see and and this is partly what captivated you when yeah, you were young the, yeah. the beauty of the of the bird itself and then also its its story of how it was so um, dominant and predominant in the billions uh, these these birds flocked and then it disappeared yeah I mean when you combine just the beauty of seeing a single bird and then try to imagine a billion of those birds in one flock. I mean, there's there's nothing alive that's that's anywhere near those numbers, at all, uh, and nothing that really flocks as densely. I mean, imagine if you're driving along the road, you might see like a swooping flock of blackbirds or some other type of bird, and they fly close together. And that's what you want to think of for passenger. Oh, that's what you want to think of for passenger pigeons is this close, the way sparrows fly together, very close flying together, only it's this big bird, so we're not typically used to seeing a larger bird flying like that. And then picture, you know, the, the entire sky filled with these birds. It's just, in, to me, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's something I, I really want to see. It's a spectacle of nature that's just so impressive that uh, I think our generation has really been robbed of of being able to enjoy and appreciate. You know, when we, when we see nature a lot of times, we don't uh, understand how small we are. Uh, you know, it's easy when you're sitting at the base of a mountain or a glacier in Alaska or you're at the Grand Canyon and you finally realize, God, we're really small, but it's rare for us to become dwarfed by another animal in such a way. So where are you right now? You have 
an incomplete genome of the passenger pigeon, and how do you go from that, where you are now, to actually the live bird? Well, so the next step, of course, is just completing the genome. Um, and then it comes down to scrutinizing the passenger pigeon genome compared to its living relative, the band-tailed pigeon. We need to know how to take the band-tailed pigeon genome and change it into something that creates a passenger pigeon. So what is the next step then? And I know you're not there. You, you put it into the cell, into the nucleus of a cell of a band-tailed pigeon? Yeah, that's uh, essentially the idea. Um, we can't take the DNA from the museum specimens and do that with because it's so degraded and in bad shape, but we can resynthesize, actually build the, the passenger pigeon DNA code from scratch and then introduce that into the band-tailed pigeon genomes. Using uh, nucleotides and so forth. Yep, yep. Uh, and these synthetic pieces built from nucleotides that match the passenger pigeon code can be guided into the area of the band-tailed pigeon genome where they go by uh, something called CRISPR technology. And essentially what it does is it swaps out the, pass uh, the band-tailed pigeon code at that spot for the passenger pigeon code. And, you know, with enough times of introducing that into a cell culture, eventually we'll rewrite the band-tailed pigeon genome into being a passenger pigeon genome. And you feel confident that this would result in a bird that you could say is a passenger pigeon and not a hybrid between a passenger pigeon and a band-tailed pigeon. And that question goes out to um, any of these research projects or any of these attempts to try to bring these species back. How do you know that you have the bona fide species that went extinct? Oh, well, that comes down to well, one that's, that's a severe problem in biology, which is how you define a species to begin with, uh, which is very, very complex and complicated. Some people would argue, well, if it looks like a passenger pigeon and acts like a passenger pigeon, that's what you have. You have a passenger pigeon. Other people would say, whether it looks right at all, you definitely have to have the passenger pigeon genome code there. And so essentially what we're doing is is using the standard of, of both. You know, we, we want a genome that matches passenger pigeon DNA um, in as much as functionally, you know, needs to, and also looks and acts like a passenger pigeon at the same time. I think we'll definitely have a, a passenger pigeon. I mean, uh, with dealing with whether or not we'll have a hybrid at first or a chimera of some sort. That really depends on the cellular technology for creating the bird. And, uh, but there will come a point in breeding these various early stage birds that a passenger pigeon is born and produced. In, in some of your talks, you said that if you go to the trees in your backyard and if the trees have been there long enough, um, there's a good chance that they remember the passenger pigeon, which is a bit of poetry, really. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, the passenger pigeon, you know, it went extinct a uh, hundred years ago. But uh, so 150 years ago, passenger pigeons were breeding and flocking around in forests in uh, the New England area, Great Lakes, all the way out to Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, and as far south as Georgia, Louisiana. And so if you have a tree in your backyard that is 200 years old, it's highly likely that it once had a passenger pigeon nest in it. 
It's likely that maybe you even might have a few passenger pigeon bones just a few inches under the ground in your backyard from some juvenile that didn't make it or from some bird that was shot and, well, wasn't big enough for market or something like that. And I think that gives us a... It's it's a very different scope than thinking about mammoths or titanotheres or dinosaurs or something that's been long dead because there is this kind of leftover intimacy from an animal that went extinct very recently. Ben Novak, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Ben Novak is a biologist working at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is a scientist and research consultant to the Revive and Restore Project at the Long Now Foundation. Well, Hank Greeley, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're a law professor, and you work in bioethics. You're the director of the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford University. That's right. Okay. Well, you've been helping to define the debate over de-extinction. And before we get to the advantages and disadvantages of doing so, can you kind of give us an overview of this interest in de-extinction? Is it a real science or would you just call it playful bioengineering? What is it? Well, I'm not sure I know how to define it that way, but I do think it's about to be real. In fact, the first extinct subspecies, at least, was brought back uh, to life about 10 years ago. A Pyrenean ibex, which had been extinct for three years, was brought back through cloning. Unfortunately, the baby goat only lived for about seven minutes. Uh, but I think we're going to see more and more work on de-extinction. What would be your top ten species to bring back? I mean, if you could push a button, what, what would you do? Oh, well, I really would love to see a saber-toothed cat, although only from a safe distance. Uh, the nine-foot uh, flightless moas from New Zealand, that'd be really interesting. A ground sloth, giant ground sloth, like to see that. I would love to see some dinosaurs. This isn't going to get us dinosaurs. You need to have good DNA sequence, and it's thought you probably can't go back farther than 100 to 200,000 years. So Jurassic Park, not going to see it. Pleistocene Park, I think that's a real possibility within the next 20, 30 years. Hank, you've been helping scientists and the public frame the issues involved in de-extinction. At least one of your talks was entitled Hubris or Hope. Uh, That title could apply to a lot of subjects, I think. But let's begin with the concerns that you're raising there. What are the big questions raised by bringing back a a saber-toothed tiger, for example, or a passenger pigeon? Probably the most important risk, at least tangible risk, is environmental. You bring back a species. The species was here in this environment before, let's say the passenger pigeon, but the environment that species was in has changed. Humans have changed every environment. And so a passenger pigeon in the environment in eastern North America in 1700 was really a different thing than a passenger pigeon in 2020 would be, and it could be a pest. I can imagine. In the case of the passenger pigeon, I mean, pigeons in general, the pigeons we have are considered pests. I, I, you know, would, would they just add to the, the pest index or would they maybe displace those right. pesty pigeons we now have? And those are the sorts of things you'd have to think about. There were three to five billion passenger pigeons in North America just 200 years ago. It would take them three days to cross the sky. I was born in Columbus, Ohio. In 1857, a pigeon flock crossed Columbus. That was before I was born there. 
and uh, left everything in town covered in an inch worth of pigeon guano. Today's citizens of Columbus probably wouldn't be very happy about that. <laughs> so you have to worry about the environmental consequences because in a sense, they're just like any other alien species. It's a little odd to call them alien because they used to be here, but the here where they used to be isn't the here that's now. It, it kind of reminds me of the introduced species in Australia. That's right, the rabbits, for example or all the damage that rats and cats have done on various islands around the world, you know, putting the wrong animal in a particular ecosystem can wreak havoc. Other concerns, Hank? Maybe the most tangible risk is the risk to the animals involved. You'll be doing genetic manipulations on animals that haven't been done before. You'll have, say, Asian elephants try to carry mammoth fetuses. We don't know what that'll do to the fetus. We don't know what that'll do to the Asian elephant mother. There are real risks to the animals that will be involved. And I worry that de-extinction will undercut political support for conserving existing endangered species. The best tagline for the Endangered Species Act has always been, extinction is forever. Well, if extinction's not forever, what does that mean? If the guy who wants to develop a golf course that's going to take out the last of the endangered devil's hole pupfish says, okay, okay, here's a million dollars, you can bring the pupfish back sometime in the future. What are the political consequences of that going to be? What about concerns that are more, well, philosophical? There is a concern that I have difficulty getting my head around, but it seems to have a lot of visceral appeal. It's the sense that this somehow is deeply unnatural. Sometimes people think that, well, the animal's extinct for some good reason. It's extinct because God wanted it extinct, or it's extinct because Darwin wanted it extinct, or natural selection wanted it extinct. And it's, it's wrong, it's, it's playing improperly with nature to try to bring it back. That one doesn't make a lot of sense to me in general. I don't think natural selection is a normative thing. You get lucky, you don't get lucky, you go extinct, you stay alive. Uh, the world that we see today, the biological world we see today, isn't the best of all possible worlds. It's a result of chance. If it hadn't been for that big comet or asteroid 66 million years ago, we wouldn't be here at all. It would still be dinosaurs, most likely. And the argument seems to me particularly bad when we know why the passenger pigeon went extinct. It was men with guns. Well, if God wanted those men with guns to cause the passenger pigeon to go extinct, Maybe God wants men with men and women in laboratories to cause it to become de-extinct. This naturalness argument, I think, does have a lot of visceral appeal. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it's very dependent on the particulars of any given case. You know, laying out these concerns, Hank, I mean, have you found as a bioethicist that science ever listens to these kinds of concerns before it marches on? I mean, it seems that the research involved in de-extinction is simply going to go ahead, and this is just human nature, and it always has been. Well, as a lawyer who works in bioethics, I actually am fairly um, optimistic. I think we've done a pretty decent job over the years, not so much in stopping science, and I'm not in favor of stopping science, but in trying to make sure that it's done in appropriate ways, in ways that minimize the risks to humans and to others. So if you look, say, at research around genetics, I won't say that we've done everything about genetics properly in the last 30 or 40 years, but we have muddled through pretty well. 
And I think part of that is because we've had lots of people thinking in advance, what are the issues? What could go wrong? What kinds of steps could we take to do things like protect people from health insurance discrimination or employment discrimination? So I don't view myself uh, or most people working in bioethics as enemies of science. I love science. I just think we need to be careful to try to make sure it goes forward in prudent ways. Okay. Well, you've, you've laid out the caveats. If you were sitting in a bar talking to some guy next to you about why we should do this, why de-extinction would be really neat because he's probably thinking of bringing back Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like that, and we're not talking about that, what would you say? What are the good reasons for doing this? Well, I have to say I think the best reason to do it um, doesn't get talked about much in, in the literature of weighing balances, weighing pluses and minuses, but I think this would be really cool. Now, there's a fancier way to say that. It could produce a sense of awe or a sense of wonder. Um, in cost-benefit analysis, we don't take that into account very much. I think we should. Much of our lives are spent trying to find those moments of wonder or awe or cool. One of the possible risks of de-extinction are risks to the environment, but one of the possible benefits of de-extinction are benefits to the environment. Sergei Zimov, a Russian scientist working in Siberia, thinks that bringing back the woolly mammoth would help transform the Arctic into more of the grassland that it was during the glacial period, the areas outside the glacier, from the tundra, the moss and lichen-covered tundra that it is now, that lacking those big herbivores, that ecosystem changed. Putting them back might improve the ecosystem. Kind of a homegrown terraforming project. I can imagine that. And by the way, I'm also looking forward to Pleistocene Park. I, yeah. I think that would be great. I, I would certainly pay for that. Um, there's a positive argument that I think is also a little hard for me to wrap my head around, but it's an argument from justice. It's an argument particularly with the species that we clearly have driven extinct. We killed them. We slaughtered them wantonly. Now we can bring them back. Shouldn't we? Do we have an obligation to bring back species that we caused the extinction of, either to eat, like the passenger pigeon or the dodo, or because we thought they were predators or pests, because they were eating our sheep, like the Tasmanian thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger. That has some appeal to me. It's a little difficult, though, to see who you owe the duty to. Do you owe the duty to an extinct species? And after all, you're not going to bring back the animals you killed, and we aren't the people who killed them. Our ancestors killed them. There's a transgenerational justice problem here, and yet there is some visceral appeal to this argument from justice, I think. Hank Greeley, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Hank Greeley is a law professor that works in bioethics, and he's the director of the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford University. Coming up, preventing the extinction of an animal near and dear to us, namely ourselves. Will humans follow in the footsteps of the dinosaurs and the dodo? It's de-extinction on Big Picture Science. The subject of extinction gives us a lot to ponder, not just the possibility of bringing species back, which, you know, even if it were to work, wouldn't guarantee to restore the world to what it once was. In her latest book, On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature, author Melanie Challenger writes about living in a world that's in the process of disappearing and the tension between modern life and the natural world. Among the places that she traveled for this meditation, the abandoned whaling stations of South Georgia, in the oceans around Antarctica. 
had a great love of the blue whale as a child, as probably many people do. And obviously it caused me a lot of distress to arrive at the idea that this magnificent animal had been driven to near extinction. So so that caused you to actually go visit some of the sites where whaling was done, including uh, Gritvitgen, I, I may have mispronounced that, but uh, you know, in South Georgia. But this That's was right. an important place 100 years ago. The whaling industry is an incredibly useful historical industry. There are There is some whaling still, but it's largely uh, commercially extinct. And the reason it's so interesting, it's like a time capsule. It just literally you can see a boom and bust industry just there in the records. And Gritvik, and yet up until um, sort of really just about um, a little while after the Second World War, was a very lucrative industry. And this remote place, this kind of wild, remote, um, largely uninhabited subantarctic island was home to a thriving oil industry, um, whaling industry, and all that's left now are are vast, rusting ruins. And they are gigantic because they're built to the proportion of, of the largest animal that we have that has ever lived on the earth. It's just giant platforms that the carcasses were winched onto and vast vats, oil vats, circular rusting structures against the snow and it, 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 it staggers you can't but be staggered by them and it does stop you in your tracks and make you really consider <laughs> what it is that we're capable of doing. Well, um, well but, but isn't there a, you know, sort of a strong encouragement to exploit or at least there historically has been a strong encouragement to exploit what other animal life, plant life for that matter, we find here because even the Bible says, you know, you're, you know, this is your dominion. You yeah. humans have dominion over all this. And, and I think most people interpret that to mean, well, doggone it. We're just going to use them to either eat them or use them for lighting our lamps or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, we're always going to need to exploit our environment. We're, we're an animal. And that's not only necessary although we're getting very good at inventing things for ourselves but you still got to use what you got in your environment that's a natural thing what's interesting about the whaling industry though is that it shows you what can cause innovation and why we can get into the kind of mess that we're in now because one of the things that happened with the whaling industry was that as the animals grew scarcer and scarcer they're long-lived species um and and if you take once you get a very immature species uh, uh, immature population you can tell that it's being overexploited. so the whaling population plummeted they were taking hundreds of thousands out of the water and they couldn't get back to their ordinary levels and the whalers knew this but instead of working together really to halt, you know, the moratoriums were put in place, but instead of really effectively um, putting constraints down and limiting behaviour, what, what happened was that in the last years of the whaling, unprecedented levels of technological innovation took place so that the very last sort of squeeze of profit could be taken out of the industry. And that, in large effect, that kind of incredible innovative potential was was ignited precisely by the near extinction of the resource. Would you see this as a kind of a race between technology and, uh, you know, extinction in a way? Because, 
I mean, in a sense, the whales were saved. All right, maybe it wasn't because people were sympathetic to the plight of this, uh, you know, impressive animal, but but they invented electric lighting and and mm-hmm. new kinds of lubricants and so forth. And and it turns out that well, you know, maybe you can't sell all that whale oil anymore. I mean, m- maybe that's going to be the general run of things. That that technological advances will preclude us from driving too many more species extinct, or is this just whistling in the dark? I think, well, no, I think there's truth in all of it. I mean, I'm not sort of a doom monger at all. And, and I, t- I tend to be sort of a bit more subtle and pragmatic about my thinking on it. And, you know, certainly when you read earlier alarmists, if you like, much of what they said was true and what they were concerned about was true. But nonetheless, one of the things that they always felt was that sort of the end was nigh. And the end wasn't nigh precisely because that as you have pointed out, that innovative potential in us is often what saves our skin and incidentally can save a range of other animal skins at the same time. I do think that our ability to innovate will be what will be a very powerful tool in helping us to to live more harmoniously with the rest of nature. But I don't think that will be an even process because because as as an animal like every other, we have multiple interests at work at the same time. Melanie Challenger, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Melanie Challenger writes poetry and nonfiction. Her latest, On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature. Well, from biology's perspective, we're just another animal on this planet. And as an animal, our continued presence is simply not guaranteed. Are we smart enough to ensure our own survival? We asked Nick Bostrom of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. Nick, as the director of Oxford's uh, Future of Humanity Institute, can you give me a straight-out prediction? Are humans going to still be here 100 years from now? I don't know. And I think it's important not just to pull an answer out of one's hat just in order to have an answer. One of the key things we need to get much better at is recognizing where we are uncertain about things and then maybe trying to be precise about the ways in which we are uncertain. Well, what are the sorts of factors that might affect our long-term survival possibilities? Well, I think that humanity is in a very precarious position right now. What we take to be the human condition, the normal human condition, the idea that we drive our car to work and sit in an office cubicle and then we go home and have dinner with the family, if you think of that from a historical timescale, it's a hugely anomalous condition. For almost all the time that our species has existed, we live very, very different kinds of lives. Most of human history, we live in a Malthusian state, where people earn just enough money to survive and reproduce. And I think going forward, we're not going to see this condition lasting for very much longer in, in historical or ecological timescales. But I think that uh, we might transition out of it. And there are sort of two directions. We could either, as it were, transition out of it upwards by becoming something more than human, maybe developing mature technology, colonizing space and all of that, or downwards by becoming extinct. And I think both of those are real possibilities. All right, but I, I, I might argue that the fact that our lifestyle is so anomalous these days, the fact that we do things that our predecessors really couldn't even have dreamed of, that's a cause for maybe an upbeat assessment of our future because, after all, there are far more people today than there ever have been in the past. I mean, are we really on the eve of destruction here? Well, I don't know that we are. I think that the difference is that through most of human history, there were no threats to our survival that arose from our own activities. There's always been some background risk of extinction from asteroid impacts or supervolcanic eruptions. Although they are real threats, they are very, very unlikely threats. 
in any given century, it's extremely unlikely that an asteroid of sufficient size will smash into our planet. Okay, you're not so worried about the usual cosmic catastrophes. That's not what's concerning you. No, because, well, the human species has been around on this planet for over 100,000 years. And if none of those things have done us in, in those 100,000 years, it's unlikely that they will do us in in the next 100 years. Uh, By contrast, these new phenomena that we are introducing, those we have no track record at all of surviving. Among the many good things that these powers will enable us to do, they could also be used for evil. Technologies that could be weaponized in history, they have been weaponized and then used in wars. And nuclear energy can be used for good, but we get nuclear weapons. We've got explosives that can be used in mining, but then they're used to make bombs and so forth. And uh, something similar could happen with a synthetic biology, where you could use it to grow maybe replacement organs, but maybe also to concoct new diseases and pathogens and things that run amok in the environment. It seems that the thing that most disturbs you, Nick, about our future is inventing strong AI, artificial intelligence that has the cognitive capabilities of a human These would be machines, of course, incredibly useful for us in solving problems, but that might create worse problems. Can you give me an example of where this might run amok? Well, I think it's certainly one of the things we should be concerned with. If you think about why it is that here on this planet, human beings have this special position, it's not because we have stronger muscles or sharper claws. It's because our brains are slightly different from those of our ape ancestors. And those small differences in brain architecture have enabled technology and complex social organization, and and that's then what gives us power. So it's immediately plausible from this that if something else were as much smarter than us as we are smarter than other animals, that that other thing could also be potentially very powerful. It could invent all kinds of technologies very quickly, and it could use those to achieve its goals, whatever those goals are. But couldn't we program into them some sort of benevolence that they would, you know, regard us as, I don't know, gods, but at least they're creators, and they would never do anything that wasn't in our interest, too? I think that is what we should be aiming to do. It's just that right now nobody knows how you would actually do that. So, um, so you're more worried about their morality than their, <laughs> than their existence in a way. I mean, that, Well, I mean, like, I, I'm... Their their existence would not be worrisome if one could be assured that their values would be good. When you talk about an AI system, by the way, how how do you envision that? I mean, you know, we're talking about an intelligence in a box. It sounds like some sort of, I don't know, technological oracle of Delphi. You know, speak into this microphone and you can ask this thing any question, you know, and it responds to you. Is, Is that the way you picture it? I mean, these aren't robots walking around that are really smart or anything like that. Well, I mean, so the robotic part, like the embodiment, I don't think is where the danger would reside. So what I'm talking about now is some kind of hypothetical machine superintelligence that might come to exist later in this century. Well, you know, it's nice to consider these possible future scenarios, but can we do anything about them? I mean, will there be some action as a consequence of your studies there? Yeah, I mean, the ultimate reason why I'm interested in these things is that I actually want to have some positive impact on the world. With regard to existential risk and and risks from superintelligence in particular, Our understanding is really so limited at this stage that probably the best first step is to do more research and analysis of these issues. That's what we need. Nick Bostrom, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. Nick Bostrom is from Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. Well, when we look at the future of humanity, 
if humans do disappear, Seth, there won't be humans to bring us back with a de-extinction effort. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, Molly. I hadn't thought of that. But, you know, maybe what we ought to do is take out some sort of insurance policy by putting all the instructions for how to do de-extinction into some sort of time capsule. Maybe we put it at the Lagrange points, you know, so that some species a hundred million years from now might find it and, and, and bring us back. So include some human DNA up there. Yes. And of course, that would beg the question of whose DNA are you going to use? Thanks to our ever-present production duo, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to De-Extinction, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. While you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio just because you don't want to entertain the idea that broadcasting might go extinct, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show.